Welcome to the Behind the Surface podcast presented by the International Surface Fabricators Association. ISFA exists to serve industry professionals involved in the fabrication of manufactured surfacing materials. With each episode, Behind the Surface inspires fabricators to take their business to the next level. Now with your host, Nancy Bush. Welcome to the Behind the Surface podcast. I'm Nancy Bush, and I'm joined here today by a good friend of mine, Joe Deska, past president of ISFA. Um, today, we're going to talk about slab yield and material optimization. And uh, just a little background on Joe, who is a highly experienced fabricator and current president of Carolina Custom Surfaces a company that Stoneworld awarded the prestigious 2021 Fabricator of the Year. And uh, Joe himself has a degree in, in industrial engineering and an MBA as well. He has strong interest in the relationship between machinery, people, processes, and it served him so well in all the various positions, including plant engineer, production manager, and plant manager for two manufacturing companies. He began working for Carolina Custom Surfaces in 2004 and purchased the company the following year. You dove right in, Joe. I did. I did. <laughs> Got my feet wet and enjoyed it so much I bought the company. I love it. Well, Joe is a big believer in the importance of creating a customer-centered company culture. And you know what, Joe? I think that statement could not be more true. I've met your staff, I've seen your operations, your facility, it is top notch. So in my book, you're always Fabricator of the Year, right? You'd be on that list for me for sure. Um, but I think what I wanna, I wanna start right out of the gate and ask you when it comes to, you know, slab yield and optimizing, I think you used a word earlier when we were chatting, slab optimizer. Sounds, it sounds so like some kind of transformer or something. Actually, it is kind of a transformer, isn't it? It is. It, it can transform your business. Um, you know, prior to getting involved in the stone business, um, my my previous uh, life was working with uh, building windows and and glass, uh, cutting glass for those windows. And if uh, if you work in that industry, when you're cutting glass for a large production facility, that's all pre-optimized through a glass optimizer. It takes a look at every window you're going to build for your production run, takes a look at every uh, size of uh, glass uh, thicknesses and types, and it lays everything out and optimizes so that when you go to cut the glass, it's already got a plan for what every window is going to be cutting out of. And by doing that, you can improve your glass usage, your yield, just as we try to do on the stone industry. And so it was a natural crossover that, uh, you know, after we got into stone and like everybody else, we're looking at optimizing our slab usage and uh, found a way to take some of that technology from glass cutting and use it in the stone industry. And so today on certain projects, um, use primarily like in multifamily where you have many, many pieces of different sizes uh, or in furniture, again, where you have multiples and they may be different sizes and you're trying to orient them properly on a slab for best yield that be, can become very difficult when you're into 20, 30, 40 slab jobs, and you're asking your programmer to figure out what's the best way to use these slabs. And so there are there are software packages that, on the market um, that are freeware, as well as those that you can buy. 
and um, by putting in your slab size, the number of pieces you have in, in, in the various configurations of those pieces, um, what your saw kerf is, what your water jet kerf is, you can, in a matter of 10 to 15 minutes, easily key in a project, hit optimize, and it will spit back to you what your slab yield will be and how many slabs of each orientation should be cut. And your programmers can uh, begin programming the job and and uh, making some real hay. And we uh, we have a job that we are working on currently that we originally budgeted at 66 slabs. And after running through the optimizer, uh, we're down to 52 slabs. So that's 14 slabs of profit before we put stone before we put saw to stone. That's amazing. That is transformative. I'm going to have to look at this when I'm making those sugar cookies every year. <laughs> I always think that I've always got so much left over. I got to re-roll it. It's a, so inefficient, right? So when you're talking about uh, a big commercial project, kind of what, give me an idea of, you've probably got an idea of what's worth going through the optimization process. Like, is it 10 slabs? Is it five slabs? How many how many slabs is worth taking that time and kind of investing in in figuring that out? Yeah, some of it is the the number of slabs um, that you you think will be needed on the job, and some of it is the actual configuration. You know, sometimes you get into a job where everything's the same size; they're all 66 inch long, you know, galley kitchens, and those are pretty easy to figure out. And so, I you know, typically when it gets to be in that 15 slabs or more, I start to look at the optimizer and say, okay, let me just throw this on the optimizer and see if we can save um any material by doing it that way you know when it gets into smaller jobs maybe you know one to five one to ten slabs uh your people can do a really good job with that as well from their experience and um you know i know we'll talk a little bit more about this in a little bit but there's different ways you can have your team optimizing slabs as well um you know to save you that money but the optimizer is just one tool in in the in the tool belt in the tool belt so when you're when you're thinking about this optimization process, is this something that you've ever used, say, um, during the bidding process to be competitive to win a job versus? Yeah, that's a very good question. So most of the time we're using it on the back end to okay. you know try to save after we've been awarded a job. However, if I know I'm in a public bid job where the competitive it's going to be a very competitive environment, we'll run the optimization on the front end. And if we know that uh, if you use this, the average of 30% waste is kind of the industry standard that people throw around, if that yields about 66 slabs on the job and we run our optimizer and it tells us 52, maybe we bid the job with 60 slabs. And we know we're going to come in lower than the others, but still below what we're really going to need for the project. And so uh, we do use it as a competitive advantage at times. Very nice. Now tell me a little bit more about these um, tools that the individual staff can use in that process. Okay, well, this kind of goes back to the culture that you mentioned earlier. Um, you know, last year Eric Tryon, um, you and Eric Tryon did this installing profitability series, and if you haven't heard that yet, please go back and, and listen to that because there's some incredible information in there, and he did a whole uh, series of podcast on materials, on optimization, and design. And you know, one of the things that we took away from that that we put in place is incentivizing your programmers. 
So your programmers every day are taking a look at your slabs and who better to figure out what the yield should be on those smaller jobs, the one to five slabs, your day-to-day -day residential jobs, than the people that are working with it every day. And so, um, you know, by incentivizing those programmers to save material where possible, you have somebody who is vested in looking at optimizing your yield on every project, and you can't get much better than that. So, uh, you know, some of the things that programmers look at when they're incentivized is, you know, how do I better nest the jobs? Okay, so if you're fortunate enough to have a water jet saw, you can now nest jobs, whereas when you have a gantry saw, you may have to just cut rectangles and, and cut straight cuts. Um, when you start getting into some of the digital equipment, it gives you the opportunity to nest pieces, which improves your yield on your jobs. So the way that your programmers are nesting jobs, while also factoring in the aesthetics of veining and how pieces will seam together, they can, they can save you material. Um, seam location is another one. We don't commit to seams, seam location with our customers at time of template. We always tell our customers that we will make that decision for the best interest of structural integrity as well as aesthetics, um, but we're going to do that at the programming uh, side of our business. And so by doing that, we can put seams in the right locations to uh, minimize waste and also make sure that we're landing on um, structural components so that we've got the structural integrity that we need. If a customer demands that they want no seams or needs seams in certain locations, we charge them for that. If that requires additional material to do that, um, so they have no seam in an in a L-shaped top or something like that, then we can go ahead and give them the cost to do that and they can make the determination whether it's worth it for them or not. Um, also, programmers can combine multiple jobs of the same color. So if they are looking at their jobs for the day or the next two days or three days, and they see they've got three jobs with the same color coming up, they can combine those. So instead of cutting one job out of a couple of slabs, they can cut two or three jobs out of three or four slabs and optimize the yield based on having different layouts to play around with uh, for those slabs. So all of that, again, goes back to if you incentivize the programmer to be looking at the job through that lens and they share a portion of the savings, you're going to get a lot more um, yield improvement than if you were trying to just do it through optimizers and um, doing it yourself. A little incentive never hurt anybody, right? That's right. That's right. I mean, that never hurts. But I'm curious to know, uh, what do you do with the remnants? Do you have a program for remnants? I'm glad you asked that question. So, you know, one of the things that is very important um, with remnants, because we all have them, is to make as few of them as possible, right? And so uh, another area that Eric talked about in detail was the design of your color program, your stocking program, and aligning that with your selling strategy. For example, if you want to have less remnant in your shop, if you can get customers to buy out of your however many you have, 20, 25, 30 colors that you stock, you know, those colors, when you cut them and they're, they're a slab and a half and you have that extra mini slab still sitting there, that doesn't become a remnant until that entire lot is consumed. And now it's a single left by itself. At least that's the way we run it in our business. So everything coming out of our stocking program 
there are no remnants until we get to the very last piece of each one of those colors and bring in the next lot. So that can have a big impact on your business. Um, and you want to design your, your sales strategy around that. So for example, if your customer comes in and they don't find anything out of your color palette that they want, you know, they're certainly free to go to the distributor and pick out the colors they want, but then they're going to pay for the extra material that is needed. So if it's a slab and a half, the extra half slab, we charge them for that material. Um, and we actually keep the extra half slab as well. It goes into a remnant form at that time, but at zero cost, that cost is already covered. So your so your stocking program makes you super competitive too, right? Because they're not paying for the whole slab, they're paying for the part they're using on those unless it's the last slab. That makes tons of sense. Yep. That's the only place where we run a square foot program is on that stocking program. Uh, and for the reason you said, you know, we don't we don't have to charge them for the additional slab that's not used because that'll go to the next customer's purchase. Um, you know, another area that we've recently tapped into is focusing on incentivizing our purchasing manager. And what we do there is at the end of each month, we reconcile all the jobs that we've cut and what material may be left over. You know, we had two or three slabs left over that you know, we overestimated on the front end. Um, we incentivize our purchasing manager to get those slabs returned. And so every month we take a look at what's left over from the jobs that we cut and invoiced and what do we do with that material? You know, how do we get it back to the distributor? And you know, there's times where we have to pay a uh, restocking fee, um, but that's that's you know cheaper than keeping material that we're not going to use as a one-off. So we incentivize purchasing manager to go back and and work with our vendors to return those materials uh, on a timely basis. I love that. That right there is often overlooked, right? You'll end up with extra slabs off a job and how to get those back. And is it worth, you know, paying the 10% restock fee or whatever that looks like? Mm -hmm. um, I love that. And I love empowering the purchasing manager to build those relationships where they, you know, where they can negotiate in, at that level, right? So yeah. we're picking up 50 slabs. Hey, can you take these two? Exactly. Well, I can tell you from my past life, I'd probably waive that 10%, right? Uh, and you also find out who your true partners are, who really wants to partner with you, right? Yeah, um, for sure. It's a great negotiating tool. Um, you know, when you come back and you're working on pricing for next year and you sit down and talk about all the different things that you've worked out as a team throughout the year. I love that. That's brilliant. Well, I really appreciate all this uh, information, Joe. And I got to tell you, one thing about Joe Duska is if you have a question and you're near or far from North Carolina, he is always somehow so available like he has been today. I really appreciate it, Joe. And all that you've contributed to ISPA over the years, uh, last year as president, I know I wore you down. <laughs> <laughs> And yet you're still come back for more. So thank you so much. Um, thanks for joining us today. And if you're not a member of ISPA, you can you can check out our website, ispanow.org, to find out how to become one. Joe's been a member for some time, obviously, and uh, he's. I'm hoping that he's getting as much as we're getting out of him. But either way, you want to be a member of ISPA just so you can be associated with folks like Joe. And uh, also be sure that you're receiving our magazine, Countertops and Architectural Surfaces. 
you can jump on the ISPA website and uh, or the countertopsmagazine.com website and check that out and sign up for your subscription there. Thanks again, Joe. You're welcome. And one of the things that um, I hope everybody takes away, I would love to say that I'm really smart and figure all these things out on my own, but three of the four bullet points we talked about came from others. So I appreciate the opportunity to be part of this group. It's always a learning opportunity and that's how we get better is we, we share information and we learn from each other. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for listening. To hear more in-depth viewpoints, gain actionable insights and powerful tools to help you succeed, subscribe to the Behind the Surface podcast presented by the International Surface Fabricators Association. To learn more about ISFA, visit our website at www.isfanow.org.